0: Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. We talk a lot on this show about race and racism, about where the origins lie for our current racial moment in this country, and where we might be headed. Our goal, of course, is always to find equality and justice in those conversations, to make the path forward. Our next guest in his new book takes us back to the turbulent 1960s and a debate between two leading intellectuals of the time to show how far we've come and how far we still have to go. The two men highlighted are William F. Buckley, the father of modern conservatism, and James Baldwin, the author and essayist who was a leading voice of the civil rights movement. They met in 1965 at Cambridge University for a televised debate that showed just how divided America could be on the question of race and racism and history. The debate also carved a profile for the discussion about race for the next several decades, and much of it is as relevant today as it was back in 1965. Nick Bucola is the author of the book that we're talking about here. It is called The Fire is Upon Us. It's a play on the title of one of Baldwin's great works, The Fire Next Time. And Nick Bucola joins us now to talk about this look back at the Baldwin-Buckley debate to discuss race and racism in 2019. Nicholas Bucola, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Happy to join you.
0: So let's start with people who are not, for people who are not terribly familiar with these two men, tell us just a little bit about them and how they came to share this stage in 1965 to have this conversation.
1: James Baldwin was born in 1924 in Harlem, and uh, Baldwin was somebody who, from a very young age, was fascinated by words. He was surrounded by a scene in Harlem that he says was marked by domination, by threats to his freedom. And his opportunity, and he found power in language. He found power in books to connect people across time and space. And so he's somebody who, from a very young age, is is uh, taken with the written word, and and uh, eventually, you know, emerges on the scene. First as a literary critic, and then as an essayist and short story writer, and then as a novelist, and then as a journalist. And he uh, is one of the most prolific and important voices to emerge in the Black freedom struggle. Uh, by the time he meets Buckley in 1965, Baldwin is one of the most famous writers in the world. I think it's hard for us today to appreciate just how the, the prominence of Baldwin in that moment. Um, Buckley, on the other hand, uh, he's born about a year after Baldwin in 1925, um, and he is born to immense privilege. His his mother came from old money, his father came from new money. The key word there is money. Uh, he had they had lots of money to spend on Buckley and uh, his several uh, siblings education and Buckley was uh, given this very elaborate homeschool education through uh, high school and then he in high school he goes to Millbrook uh, an elite prep school and then he goes to Yale Buckley is also somebody whose kind of rise is is really fueled by language and words. He's in, he's an ex, excellent debater. Uh, he's uh, the editor of the, the Yale Daily News, and from a very young age, also you know Buckley is somebody who's willing to use words to engage in intellectual combat. So he uh, you know right after he graduates from Yale, soon after he graduates, he writes a a book length indictment of his alma mater uh, for its liberal biases, and then goes on to write a, a defense of Joseph McCarthy. So uh, by the time Buckley Meets Baldwin in 1965. He has uh, used his his power uh, of the power of language to rise on the conservative scene uh, through his National Review magazine, which he founded in 1955, which plays a huge role in forming the American conservative movement. Uh, and he has a, a thrice weekly newspaper column. He's a frequent he's uh, appear, frequently appearing on television. So he, by the time they meet in 65, he's the leading conservative polemicist in the United States, second only in prominence on the conservative scene to Barry Goldwater who of course had just lost the election to Johnson. So these are two intellectual giants in their own realms who are who are so central to shaping the two movements that are at that point in American history so important, the civil rights movement and the conservative
0: movement. Mm. And they come together to talk very specifically about race and racism and the roles that they play in not just 1960s America, but across history. They they start with this theme or this thesis that America's greatness comes at the expense of black people. How do they come together to, to talk about that subject uh, at this point
1: yeah so one of the really thing interesting things about about this this project is the students at cambridge who hosted buckley and baldwin in 1965 many of those folks fortunately are, are still with us right they were in their 20s then they're in their 70s now and so i was able to interview a number of those students uh and talk to them about how the debate happened and uh and sort of their their recollections of it and so yeah the the way the the motion i mean first of all the the debate itself the story of how it happened and how close it came to not happening is really fascinating (laughs) baldwin uh was um, releasing the paperback edition of his third novel another country in the uk and his publicist basically wanted to saturate the media landscape with James Baldwin for about a week around London. Um, and he called the Cambridge Union and said, hey, we'd like to have James Baldwin you know, uh, come to the Cambridge Union. And this undergraduate who was in charge of making these decisions very boldly said, well, we can't host him for an author event. Um, this is a debating society, so we can only host him if he's willing to debate uh, themes from his writing. And Baldwin's publicist said, "All right, I'll propose that to him." And Baldwin agreed to do it. Um, And so they, the 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 host, then crafted this motion. And and the motion, as you mentioned, was um, resolve the American dream at the expense of the American Negro. And so the motion is about civil rights in some ways, but it goes beyond civil rights. It asks us to think about questions of American mythology, American what Baldwin called the American racial nightmare. Um, and and so it really it was a perfect motion for Baldwin and Buckley to debate because it was you know Baldwin was one of the great champions of the civil rights movement. He, he was always you know reticent to call himself an activist or a spokesperson, but he was certainly uh, he was certainly you know this leading champion of the cause. Um, and Buckley was one of the most vociferous critics of the civil rights movement. He resisted it every step of the way. He resisted Brown versus Board. He resisted uh, you know, a lot of the activity of Montgomery. He resisted the sit-ins, he resisted the Freedom Riders, he resist, you know, he was against the Civil Rights Act, he was against the Voting Rights Act. So Baldwin and Buckley you know, ba- Buckley and Baldwin are sort sure of the perfect uh you know, foils for each other in this in this context. And they're invited to think again more deeply beyond just the whatever the latest debate was on the legislative front right which at that time was the voting rights act mm-hmm. but they're they're invited to think more deeply about you know, questions of the American dream and ideals of freedom, equality, and opportunity.
0: I, I want to play a few clips from the debate, but before we get to those, I want to talk uh, a little about the approach that both men take to this debate. Baldwin, as you point out, is a leading voice of the civil rights movement at this point, and he is very aggressive in the debate about the need to to rethink not just race and racism in America, but America itself and the way that it is configured to to deal with uh, this population that was enslaved and uh, has been discriminated against across the entire existence of of the country. Buckley, on the other hand, is a little more avoidant of that question and tries, I guess, to put it in the context of of other things in America that he sees as as unfair. He he seems not to want to engage directly in the debate about Civil rights at that moment. Um, he, he seems more to to approach all of these questions from a pretty elitist standpoint. But before we we listen to the clips, I want you to talk a little about how those approaches connect to the way we talk about race and racism today. Baldwin, of course, is inspiration for all kinds of people uh, today, uh, writers, thinkers, activists. And Buckley is, of course, the foundation for much of conservative thought today. What is What are their approaches to this debate? Tell us about the modern conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's so much about both the style and the substance uh, of what Baldwin and Buckley say at Cambridge that's relevant to today. So Baldwin, the way the debate was set up was each of them, you know, two students speak on each side of the motion and then Baldwin spoke for about 24 minutes and then Buckley spoke for 29 minutes and um Baldwin you know gets up there and he is not somebody who was you know had much experience or any experience really with formal debate and so you know formal debate is this kind of a combination of intellectual exercise with performance art there's usually a lot of you know um, you know sort of Intellectual joking that goes on, and sort and of trying to get the crowd to, to to laugh with you. Baldwin gets up there and delivers a sermon. Baldwin was a young minister in the Harlem storefront churches when he was a teenager, and he, although he left the church, remained a preacher for his entire life. So he gets up there, and he delivers a Jeremiah. He delivers a sermon about white supremacy and the ways in which white supremacy uh, victimizes not only those who it targets, but also its its would be beneficiaries. Baldwin says. That you know that the class one of the classic lines he uses is in, in the debate. And right as they're debating, uh, we're in the midst of Selma campaign. So all across the world, people are seeing headlines. People are seeing on television footage of law enforcement officers brutalizing men, women, and children in the streets. And Baldwin says, you know, when you see a sheriff putting a cattle prod against a woman's body, what's happening to the woman is ghastly. But what's happening in the heart of that man is, in some ways, far, far worse. And so Baldwin wants to call our attention to the ways in which the, what he calls the plague of color is destroying our moral lives, all of our moral lives. This is not, you know, Baldwin was always, uh, it would, if you really wanted to get Baldwin angry, he would speak in terms of the quote-unquote Negro problem, mm-hmm. uh, because Baldwin said this is not a Negro problem, right? This is a problem that goes far deeper than the color of anyone's skin. This is a problem with our souls, and so he calls on the students, those elite students at Cambridge, and everyone watching, in the international television audience, to examine themselves and then make the, the step, the act of love, to examine one another and try to free one another from the state of delusion in which we live. So Baldwin delivers this sermon, and no, no one at, at Cambridge, you know, Cambridge was one of these places where the students had. The right, you know, as members of the union, to stand up during somebody's speech, and they could, the speaker could call on them for points of information or questions. No one had the temerity to stand up during Baldwin's speech. It would have been, in some ways, profane to do so. Buckley, on the other hand, is a skilled, experienced formal debater. He had been a formal debater in high school. He had been a great formal debater in college. And Buckley, throughout his debating career, this is also true. I think after the debate, when Buckley had his own you know, television show, Buckley was famous for his, his skills of rebuttal. He was not especially good ever, even though he wrote so much. He was not especially good at defending his own position. He was really the master at undermining his, the, the position of his, his opponent. And so Buckley gets up there, and he delivers a much more traditional union-style debate speech in which he, he really attacks Baldwin. He says that Baldwin is there uh, essentially disguising his real views. Baldwin, Buckley says, is an eloquent menace, who's hell-bent on overthrowing Western civilization. And he says to these elite Cambridge students, he wants to overthrow the faith of our fathers and the faith of your fathers. And so Buckley go, just goes on the attack and he ends up, you know, in the speech, I mean, he, it's, it's a meandering speech and I don't think it's Buckley's finest moment as a speaker, but he ends up really relying on Uh, what he calls you know an explanation of of the the racial problems in the United States is an unfortunate conjunction of two things. One is the unfortunate uh instance of individual Americans who are racist. And I think he he chooses that very those words very carefully. Mm -hmm. There are a few bad apples still out there is kind of what Buckley wants to tell us. And he says it's also the of the Negro community, I'm quoting Buckley there. So he is individuals on the on the, the si- on one side, and then the community on the other. And again, I think he does that quite deliberately uh, because Buckley wants to say that there's uh, there's there's blame to go around here, and it's not the fa- all the fault of white people. But he thinks that Baldwin, as a leader, has failed uh, to motivate his uh, his people, as Buckley would put it, to to act in appropriate ways. Um, and so B- Buckley kind of, I think, the ways this connects to today. Is that Buckley is is by this time in '65 has really figured out how to adapt his uh, his politics to resist the black liberation struggle. So he starts out in the '50s writing uh, things like uh, an essay called "Why the South Must Prevail," which is uh, which is very much a white supremacist document. Buckley actually says in the document that the white south has a, has a, a right and a duty mm-hmm. to dominate black people in the south because they are, for the time being, the advanced race. That's a quote. Um, but Buckley has adapted by the mid-60s to realizing that he can no longer say things like that. And George Wallace had also adapted in this way. No longer was it appropriate, Buckley thought, for conservatives to talk about race explicitly. Instead, what they needed to do was figure out ways to resist black liberation in a more subtle Insidious fashion, and so Buckley, by sixty five and this is I think a politics of racial resentment that 's still with us today in so many ways, Buckley figures out that what you want to do, and this is a classic moment during the debate when uh, one of the the folks in the audience stands up and says, Buckley, one of the things you can do is allow black people to vote in Mississippi, and Buckley says. Uh, what what's happened? The problem in Mississippi, in Mississippi, sir, is not that black people aren't voting; it's that too many white people are voting. Mm-hmm. And what I would do if I were a constituent of Mississippi is I would disenfranchise sixty-five percent of the white people currently voting. And the students laugh because they think he's joking, but he is deadly serious. Mm-hmm. Buckley's elitism ran deep, and what he was calling on is a colorblind kind of you know, quote-unquote colorblind enforcement of laws that would disenfranchise folks uh, who were. Uh, who didn't have a lot of power in the society. And that's, that's I think, that strategy that's still very much alive and, and well with us today, unfortunately. And I think the other thing Buckley did that's really important to keep in mind is that he was, by 65, he's embracing, I mean, literally, quote-unquote, the politics of white backlash. So George Wallace runs against... Lyndon Baines Johnson in three primaries in 64 he does quite well and Buckley celebrates that he says George Wallace isn't a racist look at his speeches he doesn't say hardly anything about race he's talking about things we all we all care about like law and order now of course we all know what Wallace is talking about when he uses that language but Buckley says that's exact that's the lesson that conservatives need to draw you can talk about race without saying anything about race and so, Buckley, that politics is dominating our lives today, and I think that's so relevant for us to think
0: about. My guest is Nicholas Bucola. He's a political science professor at Linfield College in Oregon and the author of The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the debate over race in America. We're talking about this debate that these two intellectual leaders had in 1965 about race and racism in America and what it tells us about the conversation we are having today. I want to play two clips from the debate, one from James Baldwin, the other from William F. Buckley. And listeners, as we hear what they have to say, I want you to think about how much has changed and how much has stayed the same since 1965 when it comes to race relations, politics, and society. What parts of what they're saying ring true for you today? Let's first hear from James Baldwin.
2: It would seem to me that the proposition before the House, when I put it that way, is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro, or the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro, is a question hideously loaded, and that one's response to that question, or one's reaction to that question, has to depend on effect, an effect on where you find yourself in the world, what your sense of reality is, what your system of reality is. That is, it depends on assumptions which we hold so deeply as to be scarcely aware of them. A white South African, or a Mississippi sharecropper, or a Mississippi sheriff, or a Frenchman driven out of Algeria, all have at bottom a system of reality which compels them to, for example in the case of the French exile from Algeria, to defend French reasons for having ruled Algeria the Mississippi or the Alabama sheriff, who really does believe when he's facing a Negro a boy or a girl, that this woman, this man, this child, must be insane to attack the system to which he owes his entire identity. Of course, for such a person, the proposition of which, which we're trying to discuss here tonight does not exist.
0: That was James Baldwin during his 1965 debate with William F. Buckley. And let's now hear from Buckley about what he thought race and racism meant and how we should be approaching them in the 1960s.
3: Fourteen times as many people in New York City born of Negroes are illegitimate as of whites. This is a problem. How shall we address it? Uh, by seeking out laws that encourage illegitimacy in white people? Uh, This, unfortunately, tends to be the rhetorical momentum that some of their arguments are taking. One thing you might do, Mr. Buckley, is let them vote Mississippi. I agree. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more and for... uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Except, uh, lest I, I appear too ingratiating, which is hardly my objective here tonight, I think actually, I think actually what is wrong in Mississippi, sir, is not that not enough Negroes are voting, but that too many white people are are, are voting. (laughs) (laughs) Booker T. Washington
2: said,
3: Booker T. Washington said that the important thing where Negroes are concerned is, is, is not that they hold public office, but that they be prepared to hold public office. Not that they vote, but that they be prepared to vote. What are we going to do with the Negroes, having taught the Negroes in Mississippi to despise Barnett? Uh, Rose Barnett, shall we then teach them to emulate their cousins in Harlem and adore Adam Clayton Powell, Jr.? Uh, it is much more complicated, sir, than simply the question of giving them the vote. Uh, if I were myself a constituent of the community of Mississippi at this moment, what I would do is vote to lift the standards uh, of the vote so as to disqualify 65 percent uh, uh, of the white people who are presently voting. <laughs> uh, not not simply not simply to give them. No. <clears> That's
0: <throat> William F. Buckley turning the question of black equality back on black people in the 1960s. is always the number here on the phone's call. And tell us what you hear in those clips that remind you of the things that we're talking about today. Are these relevant points to the conversation that we are having? You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Abdul in Detroit. Abdul, welcome to the the show. Abdul, Abdul, you got to turn your radio down, bud. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: You know what, Stephen? I'm listening to this, and what does Mr. Buckley remind you of?
0: Well, you tell me what—I'm more interested in what he I'm reminds in the you of. i Washington. What's this that? This is the same thing that the mindset that Donald Trump had. Hmm. Oh, it's just a little bit over there. You know, it's trouble on both sides. But the other side kind of—they rubbed them wrong. What? How you rub them wrong when the people is being treated unfairly?
2: That man has the same mindset in 1965
0: that our president has today. Hmm. That's a shame. Yeah, Abdul, I think there are a lot of folks listening who might uh, who might agree with that assessment. I really appreciate your listening and and chiming in. There are things that he's saying there that certainly resonate with some of the things that our president has said today. Let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom. Yeah, um, good
1: morning. First of all, racism is this country's
0: mortal sin. As a matter of fact, I think it's a cardinal sin. Cardinal is greater than mortal. But, you know, listening to what was just played, I mean, it's like all that has passed is time. And I mean, you know, you've still got people who are of that mindset uh, in terms of what Buckley was talking. And I mean, it's plainly obvious by the person who sits in the White House. You know, they say the more things change, the more they remain the same. And, I mean, you know, I, I think there really needs to be some real serious, serious sit-down, talk to, not at, discussion about this race thing. And not just talk, but come up with some solutions to it all. Tom, I really appreciate the call and the comments uh, as well. Uh, Nicholas Nicholas Bucola, we could have this conversation, I think, all day here on the air, but we are out of time. I'm really appreciative, though, of your time here to talk about uh, your book, The Fire is Upon Us. Thanks for joining us.
1: Stephen, it's been an honor. I really appreciate the time.
0: All right. Up next, we're going to have a conversation about the stigma of living with HIV and why it still persists even in 2019. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.